tangent, right off the bat tangent, uh, <laughs> Taylor Swift did not cancel her Sunday show. Correct. And she was supposed to come on Pod 256 that Monday. Yeah. So the weather delayed her appearance on Pod 256. So she had to actually start, Tom, keep me honest. Yeah. Keep me honest. <laughs> at 10.30 p.m. evening and did not conclude her concert until 2, p- 2 a.m. Yeah, that's about right. With that said, good job honoring her Swifties, but Eco and I are pretty big deals. And when you cancel on us, yeah. it's, you're in, you're in a, a new column, if you will, and it's not the good column. And we, have a, we keep stats. Yeah, we don't, we don't get mad on this podcast. We get even. That's right. That's right. So we may be going in the music business and start touring around and creating our own records and our own, uh, creating our own label and then going head to head against Taylor Swift. What do, you, what do you think our chances are, Tom? Not very good. Not very good. Yeah, just straight up. Like, I mean, you know, uh, 212,000 was the three day attendance at Nissan Stadium. Do you know how many downloads we get on this podcast? I mean, in you know, daily in that range. So it is it is comparable, but still I think she has I think she has a larger global reach right now. You know, we're we're still lagging a little bit behind Taylor Swift's global reach right now, I think. You yeah. Know? Um we're gonna have to evaluate our uh, working relationship, Tom. Um, you know, this whole Taylor Swift thing. You gotta be on team team eco rod, okay, if you will. Uh by the way. The poll went out, and Eco Rod won. By the way, yeah, I saw that. I guess it's official. Yeah, you can't argue with the market. That's right. That's right. All right, let's get started. What do I gotta say to kick this thing off? Welcome to Pod 256, a weekly Bitcoin podcast focused on mining, energy, and proof of work. Hosted by me, Rod at BitKite on Twitter, and my co-host, Econo Alchemist. And this week, we have two special guests. Actually, really one special guest and then one recurring guest. I would also say Rob's a special guest, yeah. but right? Yeah, it's cold. He's a very special guest. That's yeah. cold, Rod. Bikes and Bitcoin. And a sponsor. And, oh, that's right. Shit. Um <clears throat> We have a, a very important guest. We have two very important guests who are both sponsors of the pod. Uh, we have this week back returning guest, uh, Rob, Bikes and Bitcoin. Hello, Rob. Welcome back to the show. Hello. That exahash doesn't come for free, Rod. That's right. That's right. I will I'll read the I ad. don't want to talk business so early, but <laughs> it's a pleasure to be a sponsor. And we also have Business Cat. Business Cat, welcome to Pod 256. Thanks a lot. It's nice to be here. I've been pointing cash at you guys for a while. I know Eco Alchemist for, uh, I mean, on Twitter and a couple private groups way back. But uh, you guys pretty rapidly became. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. That's a cool idea, and nobody else is doing it. I, I think that's something I'm gonna participate in. Yeah, I think you were the first one to point us hash rate, if I recall correctly. It just happened. I was listening to your podcast as I was working on a couple S9s in my basement. So it just, it was fortuitous. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate it. Could you talk a little bit about how shocking this kind of immediate rise to fame on Pod 256 has been? Because it's it's really meteoric. I would be biased to talk about it. Uh, but I'm curious what your take has been seeing it from the outside like that. It's been, uh, you know, the, the rise to stardom is unexpected. And, you know, it takes takes you places where you're not prepared to go. Do you think it's going to change the hosts or do you see them as really being sort of true to their values? 
It depends on the host you're talking about. I, I, I think that uh, could pot- potentially go different ways with uh, each host. Care to elaborate? I, I get uh, larger anarchistic feelings from uh, Eco than I do from Rod, although <laughs> I feel like Rod is definitely coming from a good place. He just uh, comes from more centralized perspectives occasionally. Um. With that said, Business Cat, that's a really cool background. Like, tell us a little bit more, uh, if you don't mind, about yourself and uh, your, your your Bitcoin background. Sure. Uh, let's, the first time I heard of Bitcoin was when Chuck Schumer was ranting about Silk Road back in, I think, 2012 or 2013. I was Air, Air Force Intelligence at the time doing signals work down in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And that's what put it on my radar. That I, w- I didn't start like going balls to the wall with it at that point, but that's when I realized, oh, this is a real thing that I shouldn't just ignore. People are using this for actual real utility. And uh, it was yeah, years later at uh, Penn State, after I got out, it was used my GI Bill. That's when I started uh, acquiring my first ones. I was working at the IT desk doing like help desk work, fixing people's laptops and such. And yeah, I started saving in Bitcoin and Eventually, I went to Deloitte, was doing cybersecurity work for Deloitte, doing the same thing there, stacking sats with my Deloitte paycheck. That ended in 21, and that was a little bit after my first kid was born. And it was, okay, well, I've been uh, living this life for a certain number of years at this point, so I have an option. Do I want to keep going to my career? Do I want to leave and be a full-time stay-at-home dad slash Bitcoiner? Like, and that's the direction I went. So yeah, now at this point, I am uh, essentially the, like, I'm a Bitcoin ambassador for, for uh, Central Pennsylvania. I run the Central PA Bitcoiners meetup group. I, I administrate the Telegram group. And I just started a podcast of my own. The, the second episode just came out this morning. It's oh, myself yeah. and uh, another local Bitcoiner. It's called Rock Paper Bitcoin. And uh, we're just having a couple conversations. We're kind of feeling it out, seeing where it's going to go. Dude, that's awesome. It's, it's, it's been a long path, but... Uh, and along the way, I've been mining. I heated my house with uh, two What's Miners this winter. And uh, I'm also doing spot heating occasionally with S9s with a space heater design from Crypto Cloaks. I've got a couple. Those, those are, That's where your hash is coming from, from the S9s I have scattered around the house. Oh, so you've used the guide, the home heating guide. I have indeed, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So you've got the setups. I'm, I'm using one as my footstool right now. Nice. Have you guys seen this, Rod and Nico? Yeah, I, I saw the uh, the American flag colors on his on Business Cat's Twitter feed when he printed that. That one's still a work in progress. I have uh, I've got three at this point that I'm messing with. That is so dang cool, man! Uh, first of all, uh, we'll link to your podcast in the show notes. That's for dang sure, and we'll definitely like and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app, Hundo Percento. One hundred percent. I appreciate it. Nothing too exciting yet, but we're going somewhere. Yeah, I will say this: like people are like, so we had our uh, mempool summit yesterday, meet up, and then before that we had bit devs, and oh, dude, one hundred percent. Sorry, did you, just, did you hit my fucking? I hit it. What? You don't touch the? I. Okay. Thank you. Anyways, <laughs> tangents open. Uh, I love you. Um, uh, Craig Raw was in town killer workshop by the way hands-on with sparrow wallet which is just fucking big ups to craig raw the man and um uh we had the meetup going on uh i don't even know what tangent i'm going on now tom threw me off but i guess my point here is doing a meetup actually now i know my point uh how do you 
get into Bitcoin. So, so many people, like we had about a little over 100 people probably uh, yesterday. And a number of people were like, oh, how do I get a job in Bitcoin? Hey, what are some companies I should go work for? And I'm like, dude, I don't, I really don't know. Honestly, I would say fiat mine as long as possible. Yeah. But then start a podcast, go start a meetup, go do contribute in some other way and get your like fingernails dirty in that way. And then other doors will just naturally open. Heck, Business Cat has got this like podcast and now is on the number one Bitcoin podcast that is broadcast globally to 8 billion people. I mean, dreams do come true. Cut that out and put that right in the front opener. Um, But yeah, and and then in seriousness, um, there's so many ways, um, which is just awesome to see Business Cat. I agree 100% with the sentiment. That's we've had that conversation with the uh, the administrator groups of of uh, our meetup. Like we're talking about, like, oh, what are we doing? Like, where are we going with this? What are we doing? Um, I kind like I have a side business that I started on my own that is like Bitcoin Bitcoin business. Like uh, we're doing Bitcoin tech support. So people can't use their smartphones. They're gonna need help with Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. that's the direction I'm going with that. Um, but it's like I have people coming up to me like, hey are you looking for help? Like, do you, do you need work? Like, are you looking, people are everywhere looking for Bitcoin or jobs. And that's the same advice I get. Like, I don't, I have, I can't hire you. Yeah. What I can do is you need to go find somewhere where you can add value to the system. And once you start doing that, you're going to get noticed by other people who are also adding value. And that's like the networking effect. We are building the social layer of Bitcoin and that's equally as important as the, the base layer because without humans, Bitcoin's just, is nothing. It's a technology that sits in the static. Totally. It's, you're going to see the, and Preston Pish eloquently says this, you see that net consumers like go off away while the net producers are going to continue to provide value and accrue more sats and then build amazing businesses like yourself. Um, Crossing that gap from a consumer to a producer is, it's difficult yeah, to do for everyone. For sure. For sure. And that beautiful t- every two week paycheck, it's like the best drug. You got your Netflix, you know, feeder tube. You got your two week, you know, feeder tube of your salary paycheck. You got your Uber Eats feeder tube. And you got your like velour jumpsuit that Rob loves to wear. And you're just like sitting at home chilling. And then next thing you know, exactly right. the money's fucked. And you got to go and become a nut producer. But this is a more important point than I think you're making too, Rod, which is that. Most people think that the only option they have is to go and like start a business yeah. and become a solopreneur. And in reality, the best thing is actually to use to use I always say that Twitter is basically LinkedIn, but you know what it's actually like to work with people. That's good. like LinkedIn is the version of communication that HR allows you to say. Twitter is when you get to say all the shit that's actually in your head so you know what's happening at the water cooler. If you start to, and this is such a dumb point, but it has to be reiterated because everyone thinks they have to do some fake stuff to try to get in with the cool kids or get the job. If you just act like your normal, bizarre Bitcoiner self and produce stuff and put it out there, in six months, you're going to know who your people are. Yep. Like you're just going to know. There, it's, the law, it's the law of attraction, right? Like your weird is going to gravitate to somebody else's weird. And you're going to have in the back of your head like the five companies that, okay, these are the people that I could actually stand to be around all day. And then at that point, you've made enough stuff that people actually know who you are and what you're up to. Yeah. And one, just to uh, double click into that a little bit, if you will. By the way, quick. Tangent. 
Uh, that's why I think I have I think I have sixteen thousand followers on LinkedIn. I checked the other day, and I have like two thousand followers on Twitter. So like my corporate status speak business cat is like spot on. While you know my uh, random thoughts are not that re resonating with the the gen. gen I deleted gen my LinkedIn when I left Deloitte. That's smart. Wow. Um, but my point there is uh, finding someone like you found a partner on the podcast, you have a co-administrator for your meetup, like finding someone that you enjoy. Like I thoroughly enjoy seeing Eco's face every week and I get a jam with him every week, even though I'm about to j uh, jet out here in literally less than five minutes and say, uh, sorry, but that's another uh, point. Uh, it's awesome. Just working with you guys, uh, each and every week. Eco, you feel the same way, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's just, you know, to to just kind of round the conversation, it's like, um, you know, you just, you produce what you see valuable. And, you know, I think some of the, like, the best software tools out there, some of the best, like, Bitcoin steel plate products, some of the best, like, hardware products all started because the developers of those things were doing something for themselves. Yep. They were doing what they wanted and what they were going to use themselves. And other people were like, I see value in that. I have similar issues that solves them. I want to get involved too. And, you know, for me personally, speaking for myself, like getting into the Bitcoin space, like, dude, I, I was not like a like I didn't have any computer science background and I was reading these guides on like how to set up a Bitcoin node. And it was like, it was just like, they were skipping a lot of steps in whatever documentation I could find online. And I was really struggling to try and get Bitcoin to work for myself and run my own node and, and hold my own keys. Like, like I was told is, is how we're supposed to do it. And and so I was like, dude, I'm I'm just going to document all of my steps and then like put that out there for other people to read. And that's kind of how I started getting going with all my guides. And then Bitcoin Magazine saw value in it and picked it up. And dude, it's just, I think everyone kind of can experience something like that in, in their own way. Uh, but you just keep doing what you see valuable and it snowballs. Being weird is a competitive advantage on the internet. Yeah. Said the business cat. Proof. Proof is in the pudding. Proof is in the pudding. Yeah. How'd you come up with the name business cat, by the way? Uh, Ronan Miner named me years back. Get out of here. Stop. Yeah, yeah. Ron Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Like, named you on Twitter? Yeah. Well, I used to be going by my real name, and at some point, my wife was getting upset about some of the opinions I was putting out there. <laughs> and it, this was probably 2018. That was like, okay, it seems Twitter is the place where the conversation is happening and the time has come for me to uh, assume a pseudonym. So that was, it's, I started using, I forget what I was going by before that, but my avatar has always been our Siamese cat with a tie on. And at some point, Ronan Miner named me, he called me Business Cat and that was the name that stuck. Astounding. <laughs> That's an awesome story. I still think Ronan... As much credit as he gets is one of the most underrated people in the space. Oh yeah, he's, he's such a solid dude. He has such a gift for bullshit that I've never <laughs> seen in anyone else. 
like his ability to just from like the drop of a hat be like, yeah, that doesn't smell right. You're going to need to explain that <laughs> without being an asshole, because some people do it while being very presumptuous and kind of incendiary, like they're just disagreeable. He just has this thing where he just has he has this internal machine that he just forces everything you say into. And every once in a while, the light goes off and goes, yeah, that's some that's some bullshit right there. And he goes, yeah, I, I think you're going to need to explain that more. But his calls are amazing. Astounding calls. Yeah, he's he's very intuitive. All right. So here's where I'm going to let you guys go and rock the Pod 256. It'll probably be one of our least uh, listened to episodes. So I apologize. Um because I'm not going to be here for the rest of the episode. But I'm going to pass it over to Rob and Eco, as well as Business Cat, to bring this thing home. I think we should uh, go into the state of the network. You know, for anyone who is interested in pointing hash rate to the podcast and supporting us, we have a Lincoin mining pool account set up. And so you can pick any Lincoin URL. Put that in your configuration file and then use pod256 as the worker name. And then if you append that with dot whatever your alias is, like if you use your Twitter handle, for example, then we'll be able to give you a shout out and also give you a link to view the live recordings of the show uh, as an audience member. So right now, in the last week, we've had Business Cat, one of our guests today. We've had Bikes and Bitcoin, our other guest today. Uh, both pointing us hash rate all week. And then we've also got an entity called 2xahash. So shout out to 2xahash. And then we've got a new one called Lonely Pumpkins. So shout out to Lonely Pumpkins. And thank you for the hash rate. And I think this pushes this pushes the podcast over uh, over 500 petahash, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> you want to know the, the truth? Um, Currently at this moment, we're at uh, just under 11 terahash for the one hour average. That's respectable. That's about an S9. Yeah. No, dude, it's awesome. Like, I think, you know, at one point, Barn Miner was contributing like a whole ASIC to us. He just pointed one of his what's miners at us. And we had like, we had like 140 terahash at one point. Um, Oh my goodness. But yeah, I mean, right now, like if we hit like 20 terahash, like that's that's getting up there on the chart. Man, even a single S9 with the profitability on the, the network in the past week and a half, it's like S9s are coming back. Yeah, and that's, you know, maybe we should, let me let me just touch on the, the difficulty estimator and then let's talk about what's been going on with the mempool because I think there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but just to stick with the consistency of the show format, uh, latest block is 789270. The current difficulty is 48 trillion even. And then the last difficulty adjustment or the last difficulty level was 48.48,700,000,000. And the last difficulty change was negative 1.45%. So at this point, in epoch number 391, we're 1,015 blocks into it. And we're almost right on par because the network was expecting 1,016 blocks. Um, so we're about almost two blocks behind. And so it's estimating that the next difficulty adjustment is going to be positive 
one-tenth of a percent to one percent. So subject to change as we get through the rest of this difficulty epoch. Uh, but then looking at mempool.space, yeah, dude, this last week has been pretty crazy. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it, Business Cat, and you as well, Bikes and Bitcoin. Take it away, Business Cat. Yeah, talk to us about this fee market. Have you guys been transacting at all? Or have you been holding off? I haven't done anything on, on the main chain. You guys haven't? Every, everything on layer two at this point. I mean, I've got all my machines turned back on. It's, it's like I've been uh, watching those fees slowly trickle out. Whoever was pumping all that all that Bitcoin in apparently isn't doing it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's been really good for miners because at, at one point there were some blocks there where the, the transaction fees were larger than the block subsidy, 6.25. That's the first time that's ever happened in network history, yes? That I'm aware of. There was a point in 2017, I want to say, where there was kind of equivalence, but I do get the sense that this was maybe one of the largest. It's interesting. Could we talk a little bit about the the mechanism or the rationale behind it? Because I think everybody understands that it's somehow related to this BRC20 thing, somebody trying to push altcoins via ordinals. But from what I've heard, essentially the the rule or whatever was that you had to have you had to have minted, say, I think 20 ordinals to have access to this altcoin drop. Have you guys been hearing the same thing about why there was this huge influx and why it became this huge push? Or, or is it a little bit more you know, obscure than that? Well, I, th- I think it definitely had to do with the BRC20 development. Now, as to defining what BRC20 is and how it works and you know what that means as far as like minting shit coins on Bitcoin. Like I'm not clear on those details. I, I don't really understand what BRC20 is. I haven't looked into it. But I, this influx of activity has been attributed to BRC20 from what I'm seeing. Yeah, I think that's kind of the consensus. And from what I've had, I've have a I have a programmer buddy who I know was looking for some of the docs that would break down essentially the specifications for BRC20. And he said that it's not terribly well written essentially. Um, so to me, it kind of seems like somebody is just experimenting on Bitcoin, doing something, and they happen to have the marketing budget to be okay with throwing insane amounts of fees at miners. Uh, one interesting thing, I wonder, I'm curious what your guys' reactions to this has been, because I've heard people get very outraged by it, as there always is outrage in the Bitcoin space. And then I've heard people say, well, it's the fee market, like, that's what it does. Like nothing needs to change. And other folks have said, no, we have to, we have to find out ways to, I mean, it happened with ordinals too. Find out ways to filter your nodes and do yada, yada, yada. What is your take on that? Yeah. Francis Poulet took to Twitter and was, was stirring up a storm, uh, calling the BRC 20 influx of activity an attack on Bitcoin. Um, he, in one tweet, he had like a screenshot of a text message and I don't recall exactly what the text message stated. I don't have it in front of me, but essentially the gist of it was that uh, he was communicating with one of his friends and his friend said, you know, if I wanted to attack Bitcoin and I were a government entity, just give me $10 million and I would just like clog up the mempool and make uh, Bitcoin unusable. That's how I would attack it. That doesn't seem like a very effective attack to me personally. Um, I've seen I've seen opinions go both ways in in our Telegram chat. Um, there's people that have very strong opinion, opinions about it, both on both sides of it. 
in my opinion, I, mean, I don't think there is such a thing as spam on Bitcoin. It's like some, there is a person who is choosing to spend value for some utility. And as far as I'm, I, everybody's a fan of Bitcoin as for enemies until it's your enemy that's using it. And so for some people, that enemy could just be like a memer or uh, like monkeys on the mempool. That's my enemy. Or it could be North Korea. Um, so everybody from outside of Bitcoin, people think that Bitcoin maxis are this pillar of we all agree about this. Like, no, Bitcoin mm -hmm. maximalists only only agree that Bitcoin's the answer. We disagree about pretty much everything else. So it's interesting. Yeah, it is driving. Yeah, it's an interesting wedge, right? Because the wedge is basically and I keep harping on this because I don't hear enough people harping on it. And I want to meme this into existence. It's the difference between cultural Bitcoin and technical Bitcoin. Technical Bitcoin says that if it's a valid transaction, it lives. It goes in, the, the it, it gets mined, the nodes say, yep, this is legit, transaction is over, you build on the longest proof of work, end of story. Cultural Bitcoin says, well, I don't really, I don't like that. Like, your picture is stupid. Like, I don't want it on my node. And this is like, it's interesting to me is because we've, we've always had this kind of split, right? But now the ecosystem, the community of Bitcoiners is so much less technical. Uh, and I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way. I mean that strictly in a sense of like access to Bitcoin and the growth of Bitcoin culturally has expanded so much that now the community broadly is not as technical as it was, you know, by definition, four or five years ago, even three years ago, really. Now people are trying to cling to the thing they understand. And the thing they understand is cultural Bitcoin better than technical Bitcoin. And to me, that seems like a lot of the divide is like, well, shit, now we're just getting factions as if we're like the standard news cycle. I don't want to be in Bitcoin five years from now when it's like, oh, and then there was a big conversation between the left wing Bitcoiners and the right wing Bitcoiners. But I fear that in some sense, we can't we can't avoid that. You know, you can't convert everybody to understanding the technology in the way that you understand it. And so they understand it the way that they understand it, which may be, you know, by my or your opinion, kind of a silly way to do so. but. Unfortunately, that's kind of the space we're moving into, which I kind of see happening more and more. Yeah, it seems like everybody, well, not everybody, but it seems like the majority of Bitcoin developers, users, businesses, miners agreed on the design space with SegWit and with Taproot. And that's what's enabled these current developments. And then people are coming back after the fact and saying that they don't they don't like that and and they want it to be reverted or they want to change it or they want to try and stop it or block it from or censor it, flat out censor it. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, to business cat's point, like I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's not spam if somebody's paying to put it there like that. The, the transaction fee is the spam filter. And if you're paying a transaction fee, then it's not spam. I see, I see both sides of the argument on from from the mining perspective. It's like, yeah, anybody that wants to pay the fee to me, I'm, I'm willing to publish your transaction into a block. From, from the Bitcoiner side of me, like the, the societal side of me, it's like, yeah, it, it annoys me that Goatsy is on the blockchain. Like that, that annoys me. <laughs> but that's not something, I mean, there's going to be people out there that's, that's like a game, like, like how could this, this, that completely invalidates. So like that's, are you so, it, it comes down to like, are you so willing to say that your mental projection of what Bitcoin is, this is so correct and everybody else has to has to comply to my mental version of it? Or are you 
have you grown to the point to realize you are just a user, we're, we're all just users of Bitcoin. You can spend a lot of mental energy saying that, oh, this the system should should operate this way. It would be better if it operated this way. But at the end of the day, we have very little control over it on an individual level. If you have a strong feeling about it, you can run the code that you feel best reflects your your preferences on your node. That's but yeah, like we're saying, like the technical level of people in Bitcoin now is coming to this point. Lots of people have opinions. Not a lot of people have the technical capacity to express their opinions as a vote on the network consensus. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of that technology gets put out there, and then you have zero control over how someone else is going to use it. And like you've got like a million different people looking at it and thinking of it from different perspectives than your own, and they're going to come up with all sorts of creative ways to use it, and you can't control that. Um, you know, it's, I make an analogy to like my kids, like I made, uh, you know, the game cornhole where you throw like the sandbag through the board. Like I made a cornhole, uh, couple of boards for my kids to play with. And I thought they would play the game and that's not how they used that stuff. Like I, I put it in the yard and they started throwing the sandbags. And then next thing you know, they're like stacking the boards on top of each other to build like a fort and then jumping off of that onto the trampoline. Like they weren't playing cornhole at all, but they were still having a great time. They were using it, you know, the way they wanted to use it. And I, you know, I can't like, I'm not going to try and control how they're using what's available to them. And I, I think that there's a nexus there to the way Bitcoin works. Like Technically, it's possible to put these inscriptions, ordinals, BRC20 tokens on Bitcoin. Like it's good. People are going to use it and do it. And apparently a lot of people see value in it because they just spent a lot of Bitcoin uh, paying the transaction fees to make that happen. So I say just let it let it roll. Let's have more attack where, where we enrich the miners. That's, this, is, this is the kind of business uh, attack from the state level that I could support. Yeah. Make us all rich. Give us your money. I'm 100% pro that. Because at the end of the day, it's like, what do you do? It's it's something that somebody with, with a marketing budget, only somebody with a marketing budget could think of this plan. Because only in that ecosystem could you be comfortable dumping millions upon millions of dollars into something where the outcome has no actual direct strategic or incentivized outcome. Like if you run a business and you buy a machine, you expect that machine to produce value for you. If you're trying to shill BRC20 tokens in an airdrop and you dump or rather have your users dump millions upon millions of dollars into the mining ecosystem, like there's no return on that. I don't even know if it was good marketing for them because we're all talking about BRC20, but I have no, I've never looked at these things. I just took the fees. I kept hashing. I said, thank you. And I hope they can find some more money to send it to us. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's really not that complicated from a, from an incentive standpoint. But as you were saying, like people playing the game in a way that you don't understand, the one thing that made it click to me is that somebody was posting screenshots from like the like kind of ETH head, shitcoiner side of the aisle as they were talking about their experience getting, um, trying to get these like airdrops or whatever it was. And somebody called, somebody called the minor fees gas fees. And they were like, oh, well, I just paid the gas fee and then my transaction went through. And I think there was something like there had been an orphaned block, which for the non-technical is essentially you build on the longest proof of work. Occasionally, two blocks come in, so you can think they're kind of sitting side by side to each other. Um, 
they can both live at the same time. There's nothing wrong with Bitcoin if that happens. But then what happens is the next block that comes in basically builds on whichever height it decides. And whichever one it doesn't include becomes an orphaned block. So every transaction that was in that block is now like, hey, it's a do-over. Um, essentially, you have to resubmit it to the mempool, right? You know, it's something that happens. It's not any sort of technical issue. It's just part of the incentive structure of Bitcoin. But then people were freaking out because they said, oh, I looked at my wallet and things disappeared. And yeah, there had been an orphan block. So what they had done, like it didn't disappear, it just went back to where it came from. And you realize that the level at which people are accessing this stuff, you know, they're used to paying $150 to like mint an NFT equivalent in like Ethereum or something like this. So in a lot of their minds, they were like, yeah, I guess I just have to pay like $80. That sounds like a deal. If I pay $80 to get my ordinal thing put in a block, they don't understand how it works. They don't understand orphan blocks. But $80 versus like $200, $250 to put my dick butt on the blockchain, like that sounds like a sick deal to me. So these guys ran it. You know, they ran with it. And they, they really don't understand what they're doing, which is the interesting point, is that they're using it based on the framework that they have, which is Ethereum. They're not using it in the way that we would use it because we're all kind of concerned with efficiency and paying as little as possible and increasing throughput and layer two solutions. But they came, they saw, and they paid for block space. So how can we complain? Yeah, and it looks like the excitement has kind of died off. Um, you know, people were paying upwards of thousands of sats per V-byte. I mean, they still are in some cases, but like the average has kind of trickled down to... It looks like you could get a Bitcoin transaction done within the next hour or so at about 44 sats per V-byte right now. Well, that's and, come down a lot then. Yeah. Oh, it's starting it, to jump actually, literally in the last two blocks. Yeah, it, dude, in like the last few days, like I was trying to like, I had some transactions that were stuck in the mempool for several days. Um, and like I was trying to make some other transactions on chain and it was just... The, the fees were getting to the point where they were like prohibitive for me because it was going to cost like 50 to $80 to send a simple Bitcoin transaction. And, you know, for me, it, it, it made me hesitate because I knew that it was going to come back down. Um, and I, I think we're starting to see that now. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. I've got a question that maybe you guys can speak on because this is something that I'm a lot less versed in. Um, and admittedly have done a lot less experimentation on. When it comes to things like um, UTXO efficiency, right? What do you guys recommend as being the sort of standard practices? And obviously, you know, you have concerns around privacy, you have concerns around OPSEC, um, address reuse, you know, you don't want to reuse addresses because then you're constantly signaling that, you know, this address is where stuff goes and kind of collects. But from the use side of things, what kinds of best practices or resources do you guys recommend when it comes to making sure that spend or maybe that next spend um, doesn't cost you some crazy sat per V-byte, some crazy weight? Like what are, what are the easiest things that people kind of starting out can have in their mind um, if they're not doing a full kind of buy no KYC, straight to coin join, straight into like a very, you know, a, a 998 of 999 multi-sig type deal. Like what, what are your thoughts on that? I think the, one of the things I recommend to new people, like the, be the best that a lot of people can hope for at this point 
not not hope you could do better than this, but an easy an easy way to do it for new people is just to use the Lightning Network for your withdrawal from your exchange. So purchasing somewhere that has LN operability and then withdrawing to either your phone or your node from that exchange via LN. I mean, that right there is going to, you're not, I guess it depends on your personal, what you consider your attack surface is for who, who you're trying to hide from or t- minimize visibility from rather. Mm-hmm. Um, where if you're pulling an, an on-chain transaction from the exchange, that exchange is going to see everything forward from from where you pulled the, the address that you pulled that, those sats to. Versus if you're pulling out via LN, they're only gonna, they're going to see the destination point where you pulled your sats to, but they won't have any visibility beyond that. Layer eight, so for for new people, it, it Bitcoin is enough of a heavy ass for people to wrap their mind around. Okay, I need I, I should be acquiring sats over dollars, but then to uh, layer on, I, I just recently two weeks two weekends ago gave a presentation to some local folks about the uh, basic introduction to Bitcoin, and I didn't I didn't touch on the Lightning Network at all. Um, like that's what I would consider like the uh, like lesson two, like a Bitcoin 102 or 103 yeah. is the Lightning Network. It's um, software it's, year, right? It's it's so important, but like in a fee environment like we're seeing now, I think that's going to become people are going to pick up on that just more naturally on their own in a fee environment where Lightning is a fraction of a cent to send sats versus fifty dollars on mainnet. Just over time, I mean, people are going to make the wrong decision, pay, pay, overpay on a fee, and then they won't do it again the next time. Yeah, it's like I've 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 overpaid on quite a few fees to learn how to manage my sats more effectively. Yeah, and on on main chain or on on the on the Bitcoin network, I would say like using the Betch thirty two addresses, the BC one addresses, or I guess I should say BC one Q. Um, those are typically lighter and not as like data heavy as like your legacy addresses or your uh, nested SegWit addresses. So when you go to spend those later, your transaction size in terms of bytes is usually a little bit smaller. Um, You know, and then as far as privacy, you know, obviously I'm a fan of Samurai's Whirlpool implementation, the CoinJoin implementation. Um, And so when you... For example, all of my Bitcoin has gone through Whirlpool. And so like all of my Bitcoin lives in um, Betch32 addresses. And so what can happen and what some people suggest to counter this is like, and, and I'm not I'm not saying that I advocate for doing this, but I think to your point, what a lot of people will tell you and what they just kind of naturally gravitate towards is uh, consolidating their UTXOs so that they have like, they take a lot of these like smaller outputs that maybe they got from Whirlpool or from wherever, and they're putting all of those into like one new large unspent transaction output. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, the the reason I suggest not doing that is is a privacy reason because then every time you spend that output, you use it as an input for another transaction. It's you're creating this peel chain, right? So let's say you have like half a Bitcoin sitting in this one UTXO. And then like every time you go to spend, you know, a million sats, you're you're just peeling off. Peeling like this. off, sending the rest back. Yeah. Yeah. You're peeling. And so it's on chain, it's really easy to follow that trail. Um, you know, and so it's like Samurai Wallet has and Sparrow Wallet also has uh post mix spending tools like Stonewall and Stonewall X2. 
um, and stowaway transactions. And so those like help obscure those on-chain heuristics that are used to track uh, entities spending. Um, so I recommend like, you know, as this, as the motto goes, like make every spend a coin join. And you can do that with those post-mix spending tools. But you you are going to pay for it in terms of like having several UTXOs used instead of one. And so your data size is going to increase. But to me, it 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 just kind of seems like you're splitting hairs at that point. Like if fees mm-hmm. are getting really expensive, yeah, you're going to pay a lot. And you know, if you've got several UTXOs versus one UTXO, you know, maybe generally just as like an example, maybe you're talking about the difference of spending like $50 on a transaction versus like saving five or $10 and spending $40 on that transaction, you know? So I, to me, it just seems like when the fees are really high, you're kind of like splitting hairs, like trying to manage your UTXOs to reduce that data size enough to make a, a big enough impact that you're going to be saving a substantial amount of sats. It's almost like you have to have good hygiene from the beginning to minimize, because if you're in the situation, you're kind of screwed, right? If fees are crazy, if you yeah. haven't set, stu- set stuff up properly, then you're going to have to pay. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like every sat counts and, you know, people should try and manage their UTXOs in a way that that they can be as as, as efficient as possible. But dude, when when you need to spend like 500 sats, 700 sats per V-byte to get into the next block or the next couple of blocks, like you're, you're, you're already pretty screwed at that point. Like it doesn't matter if, if you're just doing one UTXO as an input or, or multiple, like you're, you're hosed either way. Yeah. I think this is also an issue of the current time. Like once we have a couple more halvings under our belt, there's going to be, we're going to have users that very rarely, if ever, even do a mainnet transaction. Their their entire user experience will be on a layer two. Yeah, could be. That's so true. How, how do you think we message this to people? Because like the technology versus the culture, the biggest trade-off in Lightning currently is kind of the user friendliness and setting up your own your own Lightning implementation. And then the channel management, which personally, I think that this is going to become more of like um, like the friends and family model, what do they say? It's like the Uncle Jim model, where you have you know somebody trusted who's in your sort of uh, your your web, your circle of trust, right? Who is the person who can kind of manage that, which is the lightweight thing, and you trust them to not like abscond with your funds. So there's always going to be some element of trust. Um, or the tools get so good that it becomes very easy to run your own self-sovereign lightning imp- implementation. It seems like the messaging is going to have to be us keeping an eye on people, and and really, what what do we have to message? The differences or the trade offs are between mainnet versus layer two, because layer two you get the benefit of like the uh, the obfuscation, right? This kind of onion routing that's happening as you're sending things, but then you have this additional liability, which is like the technical liability having to learn that. On the other side, in Bitcoin, um, you have kind of the opposite, right? In, in in, in some ways, it's even easier to it's easier to use, but you may not have that technical liability, but you've got kind of the the liability of like having to obfuscate things or having to deal with it and maybe having to pay out the nose. Like what do you see as being kind of the educational problems coming down the road? I think that some people th- this is a mountain that's too tall that's too high for some people. like my my parents are never going to manage their own lightning node. 
something like Wallet of Satoshi is the best option for for some users like my my folks. Um, but I mean, potentially something that I could have like log into and have custodial access over, and then I could just like charge up their wallets. Kind of like I would I would do with with a child or somebody. Like I wouldn't trust my my two year old daughter to back up her own keys. It's like, it's like I also would not trust my my seventy year old parents to to worry about their keys. Like that I am the Uncle Jim in that situation for them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I would like to think that with use as as some people like with a lower knowledge level are ha- have to start using the network by necess- like necessity because three hundred dollars to fill your your fuel tank up or or sats like that they'll give you a fifty percent discount if you pay with sats like that situation. Um, people are going to start using sats in that situation, but that people use smartphones now that don't know how to use their smartphone. They just expect that it will work. So I think the tools will get better to the point that the the people that don't have the capacity to run their own lightning nodes, even even with that um, lift decreasing in uh, in in how hard it is, I, there's still people out there that I don't think will ever be balancing their own channels. Yeah, I think on chain. Bitcoin usage in a like self-custodial manner has become very easy and like doing lightning in a self-custodial manner, like it's not there yet. You know, I, I hope to see it get there, you know, but it's like, yeah, like balancing your own channels, like having channels just force closed on you mysteriously, or just like having your, your payment not get routed. Like, dude, it's, it's super aggravating. And, you know, to your point, I think most people just, they just want to open the app, use it and like push the button and have it do the thing. They just want and, their cup of coffee. Right. Like they don't want to have to worry about like all these like extra steps that go into it. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of like autistic Bitcoiners like love that stuff because they love getting into the details and like having their own like little server at home that they're communicating with from their smartphone and like, and getting all that set up and understanding the whole workflow, but you know, you, not everybody's like that, and it, it's it's it, it's ridiculous to expect that everyone is going to operate like that. So, I think the unfortunate truth is that a lot of people are going to fall into like custodial solutions. I think I think Fetty Mints is probably going to take off, and I think. Um, you know, custodial lightning solutions are are going to be used a lot. And I'm not saying that I'm advocating for those things or that I think those are good options. I just think that that's like the unfortunate truth that people are always going to try and um, kind of trend toward convenience because the I think the fact of the matter is that most people just want to open the app, push the button and have it do the thing and then be done. We're talking about onboarding the entire species like yeah there's we're gonna need more tools and yet not some tools are gonna be not the equals to every other tool so for people that are out there that have the capacity to be self-sovereign bitcoin is the most perfect tool that's ever ever been thought of to give people that access to self-sovereignty but that's not i mean that's not everyone people exist in a a marketplace and everybody has their own level of uh, attack surface that, that they're trying to cover up so for uh, the the vast majority of the people that are going to use Bitcoin in their life, they're not gonna they're not gonna worry about the same sorts of uh, threat models that people that have been in Bitcoin as long as us are gonna worry about. Right. It's just like the same similar like somebody like Michael Saylor uh, is gonna he has a different threat model than people like us. It's like it's just people that have like uh, 
in the legacy finance market, somebody like Warren Buffett, he has a different threat model than than a Bitcoiner. It's just it's uh, like, or then somebody that only has a couple thousand bucks in the bank. Yep. It's fi- find finding the best fit for your individual situation. Yeah. Now I think I think there's something to be said for everybody just doing what works for them, you know, and um, they just need to be aware that like their actions have consequences, right? And it's like. I don't want to sugarcoat it. And it's like, if you're, if you're using a custodial service, like you're, I would say it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when you're going to get rugged Yeah, using that custodial service, you know, depending on what it is, it's, you're either going to get yourself in a KYC, a shotgun KYC situation where like they're holding your funds hostage and then telling you to upload additional documentation to access them or like, someone is like robbing the Fetty Mint and taking the funds and running. Like, you know, I think it's just anytime you're using a custodial solution, you're providing that trust and that trust will get abused and historically has been abused time and again. SPF will happen again. That's for sure. Not yeah. as bad as SP- as uh, that was. I mean, not enough people were burned by it to, spread that lesson out to the world. Like more people are going to have to learn that lesson, unfortunately. Yeah. So we've done, this has been like the longest network update ever. <laughs> yeah. We haven't even gotten to ASIC the state prices. of the network. Where, where else are we on state of the network? So we've, we've gone the deep dive. So let's take a look at data.hashrateindex.com from our friends at Luxor Mining. Uh, ASICs with efficiency under 25 joules per terahash or better are trading at about $23.42 per terahash. Your uh, 110 terahash models that are about like 25 to 38 joules per terahash trading at like $16.17 per terahash. And then your like 70 to 80 terahash models with 38 joules to 68 joules per terahash trading at about $9.13. So everything seems to be either flatlining or kind of rebounding a little bit in terms of ASIC prices. What did I get quoted this morning? I got quoted $18.5 per terahash for... For like a 100 terahash model? Yeah, 130. Oh, 130? Nice. Are you expanding your fleet? Uh, not, I don't, I can't plug them in. So no, uh, yeah. but I'm, I'm always, uh, shopping. You never know. Right. Yeah. It's hard not to look, especially when prices dip like that. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to look at these prices right now and not try to find places to plug them in. Taking a look at insights.brains.com. The current hash value and hash price are, oh man, there was a big spike there. So during the <laughs> During the BRC20 token craze, uh, hash value spiked up from, so hash value went from like 263 sats per terahash per day around April 23rd. And then it spiked all the way up to 458 sats per terahash per day by May 9th. And then the hash price spiked up to 12.7 cents per terahash per day at that same time, uh, spiking up from about 7.3 cents per terahash per day at the end of April. Uh, Currently, everything's kind of calmed back down. 
hash value is at about 313 sats per terahash per day right now. And the hash price is about 8.5 cents per terahash per day right now. So if you're running like an Miner S9, again, you want your electricity rates to be under 4 cents per kilowatt hour. And if you're running like an M30S, a Watts Miner, you want your electricity rates below like 9 cents per kilowatt hour. And if you've got the most efficient, like a S19 XP, you want your electricity rates below about 16 cents per kilowatt hour. And Foundry, let's look at hash rate distribution. Foundry up to 33.9% of overall blocks found in the last five weeks uh, based on the number of blocks found by the pool. Amp pool in second place, 24.1%. And F2 pool in third place with 14.4%. I can't remember who it was. I was looking at the mempool last night and... Some I can't remember if it was amp pool or F2 pool, but one of those bastards mined an empty block. And it just like in this kind of clogged mempool environment, it pisses me off to see these empty blocks. I would I would not be happy if that was my pool. Yeah. Was it a super quick, like a back-to-back block? Yeah, yeah. Like within the same minute. Stratum V2, guys. Yeah. Speaking of which, Stratum V2 has a uh, test implementation out, I believe. Has anyone tried it? Either of you guys? I haven't. I'm I a have big not. fan of the docs, um, the reading through the website and seeing the, the various implementations they have listed. It's really beautifully put together if you've not checked it out so far. Yeah. I haven't tried it either. But soon, right? It's, it's the soon TM. It's like when the What's Minor firmware comes. Right. It's, it's on the agenda. That's right. So we've got the, we've got stats. We know what the network is doing. What was our next piece? Are we starting to look into news yet? Yeah, it's actually uh, a tweet that you put together, Rob. Uh, I'll let you take it from here, but um, Rod wanted to talk about this. I don't know. Is it like a fish hatchery that's using like the the warmth from the water-cooled ASICs to like keep their fish happy? Okay, so here's what we're looking at. So let's describe this video that we're looking at. We're basically looking at a video where What's Miner has this new platform. It's their hydro setup. They look essentially like the sort of standard rack mount server, um, almost like a blade server that goes in a standard server setup that is water-cooled, it's hydro-cooling. And in this same room, essentially, you have your kind of data center side, but then you also have what looks like uh, some aquaponics, so some fish that you're, you're going to be keeping warm, and then some hydroponics, some water that you're going to be feeding some plants, right? Uh, what's interesting is that you, you probably don't want to actually mix those waters uh, because you're going to kill your fish if you run them at ASIC temperatures. But essentially the point that they're trying to implement is here's a few different ways that you can take something which is a data center, you know, Bitcoin mining, uh, and using these hydro setups, these water setups, which is different from immersion. Because immersion, you're typically using like an air-cooled machine or in some cases some specialty immersion machines. I know What's Miner has one. You're dunking the computer in oil. That oil has to go through what's typically a large and custom setup. This is almost like a native system. This is the way that a lot of data centers actually work, 
which is with existing uh, water cooling implementations. It's simply more efficient. There's less volatiles. Uh, it's expensive, but comparatively, what you get out of it is a substantial improvement over what you would do in immersion. So the point they're trying to say is like, okay, you can recycle the heat that's coming off of these water-cooled machines, and you can do other things with it. You know, it's not just a hot tub, it's not just a pool, but you can also do hydroponics, you can do aquaponics, you know, you can do greenhouses, you can do anywhere that you need heat. And what's so special about this hydro setup is that you have these additional consequences with air cooling. So air cooling, if you're going to go from heating air to then heating, you know, a liquid or something else, it's incredibly inefficient. You also have the noise because you have to run fans and you have to deal with kind of the HVAC issues. But with a hydro setup, it's very different. You can throw a dry cooler in the back of your facility and it looks just like you're essentially running an AC unit. But what you're doing is you're cooling that, um, typically it's a mix of like a glycol and a water to keep it from freezing in the winter. You can run that through, you know, various loops and you can cool that and keep a system much more controlled without the consequence of the really high heat or having to do all the HVAC modification. So I'm a turbo bowl on hydro cooling. I think it solves so many problems very beautifully. I think it creates some CapEx issues because you're obviously going to pay substantially more for building the infrastructure for it. I think that that's going to drop really quickly because I see it as being something that's more commonly deployed as compared to like immersion. Uh, so I'm super excited about where Hydro's going. I don't know if you guys feel the same way or if you're you're doing any kind of experimentation on it, but I am I am the designated Hydro bull. I've, I'm looking at this video. I've been in I've been in this room. Uh, I, I know exactly where this is. This is in Pennsylvania. Get out of here! Oh, I love this it. Is, this is yeah. This is in up in uh, Belfont, Pennsylvania. They. Uh, What's Minor had a um, their own kind of events a couple months back. It was it was December January timeframe I think, and yeah, they they had a bunch of people up. I actually I'm, the CEO of Foundry was there. I met him there. Very cool. Um, and yeah, they they're doing a lot of really neat things with the, was it, is it Heat Core Technology? I think is the name of the company. Yeah, Heat that's Core. kind of their designated partner, from what I understand. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I definitely share your uh, bullishness for this. This is definitely the way that hashing is going to go, in my opinion. Air, air cooling is not going away. Air, like S nine, my my grandchildren are going to be running my S nines. But yeah, <laughs> modern and they'll still be running them too. <laughs> oh hell yeah, and they'll still be oh, they'll still be spitting out sets. Um, but yeah, like the, the, this type of uh, machine is th- this is the future of like a water cooler, a flash water cooler, or a water heater, or like there's a lot of stuff that this is going to be the foundation for. Yeah, I think, you know, just liquid cooling in general is great because the heat is a lot easier to control once it's in captured in a liquid format. And then I think, you know, the biggest advantage that I see with hydroponic cooling, or I guess that's probably not the right term, hydro cooling versus immersion, is that the dielectric oil used in immersion is just so expensive, just the oil itself, you know? So a lot of the infrastructure may be similar between hydro and immersion. You know, you're going to need the pump, uh, some sort of radiator, some sort of reservoir, but the dielectric oil, when I was pricing it out, was like 120 bucks for five gallons. So it's like, you know, if you're talking about any sort of scale, like compare that with just putting some some radiator fluid in a and mixing it with your tap water and then filling up your your hydro cooling system with that like 
you're going to save a lot of money just on the, the liquid itself. And it's going to be readily available. Huge. Weaponizing heat. Yeah. Oil and gas guys have said they really like this in terms of deployments because it's space efficient, but also if something spills, you don't have a reportable event because everybody likes to LARP about, oh, you know, we're going to eat all the methane. Okay, it's like a hundred times harder than you think it's going to be. It is a great, uh, it is a great solution. It's not the answer. But one of the problems is that if you try to do immersion on a well site and you spill some of that dielectric fluid, you now have a reportable event on your site, which can shut the well down, which can cost you tens and tens of thousands of dollars. If you start throwing these hydro setups out there, then you've got a solution. If you spill it, it's no big deal. But then you can also use that heat. And if you're up in you know, the, the, the Rockies where we are, um, or if you're up in like, say, you know, Alberta or Saskatchewan, way up in Canada, there's stuff you have to keep hot all the time during winter months. So you can use that heat, you can put it to effect very quickly while consuming what's coming out of the well. So it's a really virtuous cycle. It's much more efficient to route heat around an environment using a liquid medium over air as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the cooling. What else did we have in news? I saw that we had a major fee block come through. Have we hit on that, Econo, or do you want to go deeper into that rabbit hole? I mean, we mentioned it when we were talking about the hash rate and the mempool, but yeah, I mean, block number 788695 uh, had 6.701 Bitcoin in transaction fees. Or wait, yeah, yeah, that was just the transaction fees, 6.701. Wow. And then the um, in addition to that, the block subsidy of 6.25 for a grand total of 12.951 Bitcoin. Uh, for mining that block. So yeah, I think that's awesome for miners. Um, I I don't see how people can call this an attack on Bitcoin. Like, yeah, it sucks that it was like taking a little longer to get transactions confirmed or that you're paying a little bit more in transaction fees. But I've said several times that like you you need to use it or or you're going to lose it. So an empty mempool, in my opinion, is a sign of an unhealthy network that no one's really using to do anything. And a mempool that is full and backlogged and and people are like falling over themselves to pay transaction fees, I think is a sign of a healthy network that people want to use. Is it the use case that everyone had hoped for? Maybe not, but at least it's getting used. I like to see my node purging, purging uh, the, the mempool. Yeah. It's like that means there's more data than 300 megs in the mempool. Yeah. Like that, that is a good indicator. Yep. I keep my node at uh, one gigabyte. And so I, uh, my mempool space, I keep it at one gigabyte. So like I can pull up uh, like an instance of mempool space that's backed by my node. And so when I do that, I can see like all the way, I can see a lot of transactions and um, and a lot of uh, usage there. It's it's just kind of staggering the last couple of days to see all that happening. I never thought I'd see it get up to that like one gigabyte limit, but I think even at one point, even having my like own node at one gigabyte, it was getting there was more data than that waiting to be processed on the blockchain. Yeah, there was on mempool.space. Yeah. 
Amazing. So please keep sending us your fees as the upshot. Um, it's a pleasure. We will purge the mempool. We will get you into blocks. We're working the hardest that we can, guys. Hashing as fast as we can. The last news piece we had was uh, the SEC targets Bitcoin miner marathon in latest action against the industry. This comes from CryptoPotato.com. Did you guys see that headline? I saw the headline. I'm curious about this. Yeah, I saw the headline. I started to poke through the articles, but it's not. It's really not clear what exactly is going on here because it says they received a subpoena from the SEC related to an investigation of a Montana data center that may involve violations of securities laws. So, mm-hmm. what does that mean? You know, like what? Where does the it, I, my guess is that it doesn't have to do with their core operations because it wouldn't make sense for the SEC to reach out to a single company and say, this is a statement about Bitcoin broadly. And frankly, Mara isn't even one of the biggest operators. So if you think they're trying to you know, cut the head off of somebody, uh, they would go for a big boy. My guess is that this may have something to do with you know, maybe payments around like using stable coins for hosting is the only thing that I could maybe think of. So some some operator is sending them stable coins for hosting and maybe that file falls us, uh, sort of in the wrong direction or the wrong side of securities laws or somebody wants to pay with it with some altcoin or some doge or something ridiculous like that. Um, I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on that or if you're seeing something that I'm not because it it doesn't make, it doesn't really make sense to me because the securities law sort of seems like a sort of a red herring, there must be something else going on. Dude, who knows what Marathon was up to behind the scenes? Like, I know I'm, we met the guy who worked at that Hardin Montana facility when we were at that coal mining summit, Rob. Do you remember that? So the guy that operated the, the coal power plant that Marathon was set up at, he was at that coal mining summit that we did. Wow. I didn't realize that. I don't remember meeting him. Yeah. And that was like right after Marathon had decided to pull out of the Hardin facility. And so we got to talking about that. And he said that basically the way he understood it was that um, was that Marathon was like going after the, there's like some ESG, I guess, like carbon accounting credits, carbon credit accounting scheme or some ESG in incentives that they were going to go after in Texas. And so that's why they were pulling out of the hardened facility uh, in Montana, because it was all like coal related and there weren't like any sort of like ESG, you know, fiat games to be played there. And so that's why they that's interesting. headed down to Texas. But, you know, also like Marathon is, you know, you mentioned like if they wanted to try and like cut the head off of like an industry leader, it made me think of the the recent news that Marathon is getting involved with the um, the sovereign wealth fund. It's like almost like a one trillion dollar wealth fund in Saudi Arabia, or is it, it Abu the Dhabi? UAE or it was one. Of, it was one of the big OPEC uh, oil producing countries. Rod would be uh, <laughs> hitting me over the head for my poor geography skills at this point of the show. Uh, yeah, somewhere in the Middle East. Marathon Digital is getting involved with a company out there for like a massive immersion project. And there's like a $1 trillion 
development fund that's on the line. Obviously, they're not getting all $1 trillion of that. It's just that like they're the the developers in that area are doing massive upgrades to all sorts of different sectors. And so there's a lot of money to be had. There's a lot of contracts up for grabs. And Marathon is apparently getting their hands on one of those contracts for some yeah. amount of that money. Um, and that's um, that's something that I think people shouldn't underestimate. And producer Tom is bumping in here. It's Abu Dhabi. Um, is it? Okay. This is something that we should not estimate at all because if there's one thing about these Arabian Peninsula countries, these oil-producing countries, they do not play around when it comes to allocating capital. When you look over the last 10 years, how just how hard they have gone in a lot of like tech investments and uh, a lot of these sort of like startup investments, they have done a crazy job of allocating capital out of what their core commodity is. You know, I think these guys get it. They're not dumb. They know that they're sitting on some of the largest petroleum reserves in the world. And they have become immensely wealthy as a result of it. And so they're starting to allocate to other other elements of, you know, sort of the, the financial ecosystem. Getting into Bitcoin is not going to be something that is strange to them. And then it's because it's based on their core commodity, which is energy, it's oil and gas. And it's not going to be something that they dip a toe in. It's going to be something where you see like SoFi level investments of these guys starting to do a pilot and then throwing, you know, a few hundred million dollars into something. And when you look at immersion and you look at hydro cooling, that's the only stuff that you can run in these places. You you cannot run like we working in like the air cooling space. I've spoken to a number of these guys and we've had to straight up tell them it's not happening. Like we we won't sell you 100 megawatts of stuff because you can't run it when it's 50C out. There's no there's no machine on earth that you can throw in the Arabian Peninsula in the middle of summer at 2 in the afternoon and like if you melt your sandals walking out to it, you're going to be melting the sides of this thing off. It's just ridiculous. When these guys start to set up these hydro or these immersion setups, more bullish on hydro obviously. The second that they start to do this, it is game on. It is game on. I would say don't even LARP about them becoming the Federal Reserve Banks or like, you know, using their commodities to produce currency, which is which is where all the think boys immediately go. Don't even go that far. Just think to yourself, what does it look like to have a gigawatt of Bitcoin mining scattered around the Arabian Peninsula running in the desert on hydro setups with huge dry coolers. That's insane. That's amazing in and of itself. Forget about the secondary and tertiary implications. Just imagine what that deployment looks like. And that's where I think these guys are headed over the long term. End rant. Yeah, I think it's good. Like like uh, Tom is saying in the chat here, diversification for the win. You know, Get some of that hash rate out of these jurisdictions that are unpredictable or have proved to be unfavorable toward Bitcoin, share the wealth. Get it out there. <laughs> it's that other revenue stream. If they're hashing right right there next to the well, I mean, that's effectively off-grid mining as well. Like More, more of that. That's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's that company? Um, Standard Bitcoin? Crusoe. Crusoe. Crusoe, yeah. They're, they're getting involved in the Middle East. I think they got, what, like a billion dollars in funding or hundreds of millions of dollars in funding to set up some methane capture projects out there. 
Um, so it's happening for sure. It's unstoppable. Man, there's there's so much low-hanging fruit for like just the barest competency engineer out there. There's so many problems that need to be fixed right now. Like just talking about these guys that are about to okay, so they're they're gonna be deploying potentially gigawatts of, of hash power that can't be air-cooled. Okay, so like absorption heating. Like the I, I haven't yet seen somebody build a, a refrigerator out of a Bitcoin miner, but like that is completely in the possibility, in the in the bounds of possibility, just if you're a good engineer. Like right. you, you can you can run a refrigerator off of a propane uh, off of a propane tank to, for your RV. Like there's no reason why you couldn't engineer that to just be some heat off of a, off of a Bitcoin miner. Right. It's like so like that's what big data centers do right now. Like Google does that. They they recapture some of their excess heat that the data center is putting off, and they reprocess it into cooling the data center. Like that. That's so. That cool. technology right there is yeah. Like and that's not off the shelf. Somebody's gonna have to design it. But it, an off the shelf. Bitcoin solution is just waiting for somebody to build it. This is what everybody forgets about the mining space is that there's like a lag time, right? Because you can you can test stuff and beat the hell out of it in code and you can run it a thousand different ways in a test net and even then you get unintended consequences. You know, the second that you start going, you know, segwit to taproot and you get ordinals and people um, people freak out. That's not the way that things work in meat space. It's just not. And so people have it in their mind that the mining space moves in the exact same way that the financial or programmatic space moves, when in reality that space moves 100 times faster. Because if you screw something up, you can, you go, your users come back to you and go, ah, this button doesn't work. You can revert to a previous version. Yeah, you can't really do that when you, when you fire the engine up and you've you know, adjusted one of the valves incorrectly the engine is going to go down very quickly. Uh, so you don't have that margin of error. And what's interesting is that people, particularly in the mining space, that's where I think most of the opportunity is in the coming years. Because exactly what you're saying, it's like there's all this latent existing knowledge where if you have expertise in these various cooling ways, these cooling methodologies, airflow, hydrodynamics, things like this, if you have this existing knowledge professionally and you're doing it and you want to get into Bitcoin, nobody's doing this. Like we don't have, in the distributed hash side, we don't have like degrees in airflow, but we happen to build a product that has, you know, a, a, a very obvious effect on the operation of the machine. Could we make it a lot better by getting some guys to run it through a wind tunnel and, and spending a hundred grand on testing? I'm sure we could. But this is how early we are. You know, this is how early is like, this is the kind of stuff that we're dealing with. And it's just like those worlds haven't fully smashed into each other yet. The second they do, we're going to see this crazy stuff. I would love to see, you know, RV fridges run off of hydro S9s in the future. That would be absolutely awesome. It's coming. The, the development will not stop until morale improves. <laughs> it's coming and it's like it's like the uh the wartime effort like we want you it's the <laughs> yeah. uncle sam like we want you we want you to build this shit for the the mining space so we've got uh home miner of the week i found this one uh lurking around on twitter uh, should have given him a shout out sooner. This was posted on May 8th, but this one comes from MacLife21Mil on Twitter. So give them a follow if you're not already. And I liked this one because they um, they posted 
a picture of their S9 running in a warehouse. I think it's an S9. No, it's a what's miner. No, yeah, that's, it's that's, a that's what's got miner. a built-in power supply. So when you when you click on the first picture, there's like uh it's an aisle in a warehouse and there's a bunch of like inventory on the shelves and you don't really notice anything about the picture. There's a crate in the background, but if you look closely, you can see this little orange fan shroud and this little box on top of the crate. And so you click on the next picture and it zooms in closer. And then you click on the third picture and it's it's right up against the miner there. And yeah, it's a, it looks like a what's miner. Um, and so I just thought this was cool that they've got, um, well, first I thought it was cool that it like kind of draws you in because you don't notice it at first. Um, but then I thought it was great that they're using their the power from this warehouse, I'm assuming this is like their day job and they uh, just have this warehouse that probably doesn't have a whole lot of people in it and it has abundant power and they're able to just plug in their ASIC and let it run in the warehouse there. Uh, so I just thought that was great. Just looking at this picture, I love it. They're pulling, it looks like they're pulling the input air from across the uh the metal sheeting of the wall. So they're effectively using the wall to, to get cooler air to uh, yeah. pull into the machine. It's like, that's great. Yeah. I've worked in industrial spaces my entire adult life. And when I started getting into Bitcoin mining, um, I really wanted to just, I plug in a miner where we had like abundant power in these warehouses. And I'm envious of Mac life 21 for actually being able to do it. Uh, I was never able to actually pull it off, but um, I'm glad someone out there was thinking along the same lines that I was, and uh, it's just great to see it and see it in action. That's right. Big shout out to Elkhorn Valve and Equipment because that looks like that's the warehouse that this is sitting in. Oh, and also shout out if you guys notice, MacLife Twenty One removed the stock metal grills and also has some nice 3d printed metal or 3d printed grills that have the little bitcoin b on them so always always a tasteful thing you know if you can flex out the asic a little bit you always want to it's always good to see uh, a 100 percent emission free miner sticker it's nice to see a shroud it's nice to see a 3d printed intake or exhaust cover always this tasteful stuff it's it's the edges that i think really give us the aesthetic edge that's very uh very thoughtful of him to protect those uh were the warehouse workers' fingers? It looks like Seriously. a nice uh, 3D printed uh, shroud from from Crypto Cloaks. I think is that that's what that is. Yeah, that looks like one of his. And the big thing too to be careful with the what's miners because we just dealt with this. Um, if you've ever hot swapped, like moved ASICs from one location to another while they were running, uh, we did this when we installed an additional half megawatt hut on our flagship uh, flagship site. We were pulling the S19s. We were pulling a whole bunch of, you know, M30s, M50s. If you've ever picked up an M30 or an M50, particularly the M50 that has been running for a while, and you're going to move it somewhere, put gloves on because yeah. you will cook your fingertips off. The sides of that sucker radiates like all hell. S19, you could like, you could throw it in a backpack and put your baby on top of it, and they'd be happy as a clam. M50 is going to be leaving some burns. Absolutely gnarly stuff. But almost roasted the fingertips a couple of times moving some of these what's miners. They operate well at high temperatures, though. They cook. That's the big thing is that they're, 
That's what happens when you get the, the former designer of the S9 coming to work for your company is they realize that if you can exhaust heat out of the shells, you know, that's, that's heat exhaust in another way. You know, you've got to use not just the air, but you can also use the, uh, the radiation coming off the shell of the actual unit. My next uh, mine, I'm going to have to take advantage of that uh, radiant. I don't, I don't th- right now, I'm not taking advantage of that. I could, I could design my mine better. That's right. Business, I have to ask you, and this is a total topic change. Uh, but you mentioned aerospace, mm-hmm. and I, uh, you know, since we're doing the video chat, obviously the listeners aren't going to see the video, but I can see your screensaver changing in the background. I don't want to say exactly what it is, but um, I can see it, and space so I pictures. have to say it. Say that again for the audience. They're space pictures. Okay, so I have to ask uh, because my wife and I are on two opposite ends of this debate um is the earth flat uh all evidence would appear that the earth is not flat have you been to outer space not personally i have not okay i wasn't sure if that was you in some of those pictures or not the uh i i am not opposed to it it seems like the trajectory that uh bitcoiners are on it seems likely that i could end up in low earth orbit at some point um, I'm not, it's not something I'm holding my breath for, but it's, it's something that I acknowledge could realistically happen in my lifetime, given if the market is there, it could drive the price down enough. No, I'm uh, like, I mean, so I'm, I'm ex-Air Force. I, uh, I'm a big fan of aerospace stuff, aircraft, spacecraft, all that stuff. My, uh, I, I watch rocket launches like my, that's my sports. Instead of watching football, I watch rocket launches. What do you think of that, that, uh, what is it? Heavy Falcon, Falcon Heavy? The uh, so there's been a couple Falcon Heavy launches. I, I think you're talking about Starship, the the test most launch of Starship. Most recent one. Yeah, the most recent one that blew up. Okay, so you're talking about the Starship. There there has been a more recent Falcon Heavy launch though. Um, so oh, really? Starship. Yeah. So the the most recent Falcon Heavy launch was fully expendable. They didn't recover any of the cores. All of it just dumped into the ocean. But so you're you're talking about the Starship launch. I thought it was pretty awesome. And uh, you could clearly tell when they when they transmitted the. Uh, Destroy this, destroy the ship. Uh, tra- uh, space, uh, what's it called? Um, the signal. It, there's a specific, yeah, the, the signal. There's a specific name for it that I, I'm blanking on right now. The termination. Like self destruct. Yeah, it's a self destruct system. You could see when they ter- when they transmitted that because the rocket, which was tumbling end over end, all of a sudden had three holes, like bottom, middle, and top, appear in it, and so it was leaking stuff. And it took probably another forty seconds after that before the uh, aerodynamic stresses sheared the whole thing apart. Uh, But just watching the thing tumble end over end shows you how strong of a structure they built there. Like that's, most rockets tumbling like that don't hold together. Like the fact that that rocket held together as long as it did, even after they uh, set off those charges, shows um, stainless steel is one hell of a material. And it's, there's, it's a, I think it was a good decision for them to uh, build their, their Mars rockets out of it. Wow. I, interesting. I didn't realize they had like a, so they can just hit a button. Like when things go wrong, they can hit a button and it blows it up. That's a requirement of the FDA, of the FAA. You, you can't launch to those altitudes without having that, that system uh, built into it. Interesting. So interesting. And that's to kind of keep the pieces small if stuff winds up coming through reentry. Yeah. If you, if the rocket went towards a, uh, a so what they launch out of, uh, so what, South Texas. So, um, if it was to come back and head towards the coast, yeah, they can they can blow it up before it gets there. That's that's the goal of it. Um, in fact, 
So that's an American rule. The, F- the FAA enforces that. Um, so last year, whenever China was launching its uh, components for their for their space station, they were using. So China has their largest um, heavy lift rocket. They was was required to launch all of the components for their space station, and their heavy lift rocket doesn't have that on it. So like they were just taking it up there. So whenever we launch heavy lift stuff, they like NASA or SpaceX, whoever whoever the uh, the owner of the equipment is they they take the cargo up and then they safely deorbit the craft that delivered the cargo to to orbit. Um, China doesn't do that so much, so they delivered these uh, components to the space station and just let the let the core stage tumble. And then I, I don't know if you remember, but there's been a couple times in the past couple years where there's been for like a couple days out of the week. There's we don't know there's there's something from China in space. We don't know where it's going to land, and it just happened. The, the planet is mostly ocean, so things tend to end up in the ocean. Wow. So I, I imagine that it, it would, most of it would like burn up re-entering the atmosphere, right? Or, Well, that's why you want to break it up into small pieces because small pieces burn up. Heavy things, fuel tanks, they, they don't. They, like things will, it doesn't take that much, especially stainless steel. I mean, stainless steel is heavy and it's not, not going to burn up. It's just going to maybe deform and come into smaller pieces. Uh, but yeah, like think a lot more ends up on the ground than people, people give credit for. Wow. And you, you also mentioned there was another Falcon heavy lift after the Starship blow up and that some of those components, just nothing was recovered. It all landed in the ocean. Is that what well, you that's said? Well, one of, if you were to purchase your own Falcon heavy launch right now, you can purchase it in a multiple, multiple different configurations. Like, and depending on the, uh, the weight of the payload that you want to have delivered to a certain orbit, you can, that can require, like if it's light enough, that means the Falcon Heavy can come back and they can land the side booster same, at the same time, right back on coast. I'm sure you've seen videos of that. Yeah. But if you, I mean, if you're willing to pay the premium and your, your payload is heavy enough, like, like a national defense, something like that, real heavy uh, satellite going up to geostationary orbit where it's just going to sit there. Uh, you may want to pay the uh, extra money and just have them. You instead of saving fuel to to fly the rockets back and land them, you're just going to use all of that fuel going to space. And so, and if there's no fuel left, that the rockets just fall into the ocean. That's how all of rocketry has been until five or six years ago, with, when SpaceX started reusing rockets. Wow, interesting. I was a bit of a rocket aficionado as a child, but my yeah, my skill set too, was man. far more making them out of those tubes. And then when you shove the little thing in the bottom and push the electric button and shoot it up into the, into the sky in the park. Yeah. We just, I, I bought my son, I bought my son a Estes rocket kit and we were launching it a couple weekends ago. That's, that's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. The kind where it reaches the top and it kind of splits in the middle and then your, your parachute comes out. Yep. There's nothing better than that. You can get pretty creative with those. As, speaking as an engineer, you can get pretty creative with those little tiny rocket engines. So there's there's two charges. There's a slow burning charge that is the propellant charge, and then there's a fast instant charge at the end that it burns through, and that's what is supposed to pop out the uh, pops the, the parachute. parachute. Yeah, right. But yeah, you, you can get creative with that and do other things with those. Yeah, I forget what like this the Estes model is, but I got like the like the C six rocket engine or something like that. It goes up to like eleven hundred feet. That's cool. Yeah. Heck yeah. Put a GoPro so, on that. <laughs> can we return to one um, one point that I think you just slipped in there, but I would like to have some clarification on? And I think Business Cap might be be also wondering this. Yeah. Who thinks the Earth is flat? What is going on here? 
Yeah. So I said, uh, my wife and I are on opposite sides of this debate. My wife thinks that the earth is flat and I think that it is round. There's quite a few people that share her opinion. Yeah. How, what would she have to see to, to change this? Dude. Okay. So I, I'm not sure. I don't know what it would take to, to change her opinion, but, um, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong, you know, maybe the earth is flat. I, and so like our son gets caught up in the middle of us going back and forth on both sides of this debate. And so my, you know, the, the old expression, like it takes like a magnitude more information to dispute, uh, a false claim. Yeah. Yeah. So like I often find myself like back on my heels when we're talking about whether the earth is flat or round because it just seems like there's so much more uh, evidence required to prove that it's round in the face of like all of these memes and photos and videos of uh, flat earther material that that does make it a pretty compelling case for the earth to be flat. Uh, And so... For example, like my son and I, we, you know, we all know because I've said it on this show, but we recently uh, took an airplane to another state and I bought a truck and then my son and I drove it back across the country. And so when we were getting ready for this flight, I was telling him, I'm like, you just wait till we get up on that airplane and I'll make sure you get a window seat and you'll be able to look out the airplane and you'll see the curvature of the earth and you're going to know that it's round. And so we get up there in the plane and dude, it looked flat as fucking glass. Like you're not going to see curvature from like a commercial flight. You need to get a lot higher than that to see curvature. Yeah. I just got to be like on an international flight, maybe you're like like, going over the ocean. The horizons weren't exactly as even that. Like the, there was like enough like moisture in the air, like clouds that like you couldn't really see like all the way to the horizons it, and so it just, dude, it just looked flat. And so I'm just like sitting there, like hoping that this flight was going to be like the the convincing factor to like prove to my son that the earth is round. And it it ended up like backfiring. And he's like, no, that, that looks pretty flat, dad. Oh, my goodness. So the, uh, keep, keep in mind, so like a commercial airliner needs to fly within the atmosphere, like, and the atmosphere needs to be pretty thick and to, like to, to maintain lift, you got to stay down, down in the soupy part of the atmosphere. That's pretty thick. So 40,000 feet is, I mean, that's still a pretty soupy atmosphere. Um, if you were to scale the earth to the size of a basketball, um, the atmosphere wouldn't, wouldn't be thicker than like a layer of like lacquer or paint. It's like you it's thin enough that you barely can see it. Wow. It's like the, our atmosphere is incredibly, incredibly thin. And even like getting up in an aircraft, you're not getting nearly high enough away from, away from the earth to start to see curvature, which is one of the, one of the reasons people are like, I oh, mean, I was, I went up in a real high aircraft. I didn't see any curvature. It's like, okay, that's right. I mean, that makes sense to me. You didn't see any curvature. It's like right. if you zoom in on a cue ball with a macro lens, eventually you're going to zoom in enough that the cue ball doesn't look doesn't look roundy either. Yeah. Which I mean, I I, I hate I, I don't I don't like ripping on people that like. There's plenty of like people that, that that's fine if you think the Earth is flat. It's like there's I think there's legitimate conspiracy theories out there that are used to uh, that are kind of like the low hanging fruit just to like maybe maybe potentially used to uh, remove evidence from other conspiracy theories. Like I I believe some pretty what I 
would consider like out there conspiracy theories. You want to like, I would say the most crazy one I'm on is like, there's quite a bit of evidence that the moon might be hollow. Oh, like, interesting. That's, but, I mean, yeah, right. It's like, I mean, you can go down this like conspiracy theory, like rabbit hole of like, oh, well, is the earth flat? It's like, no, but I mean, there, the, the, the moon may be hollow. Like we've, it's been hit by things before and the moon rang like a bell um, seismically for a lot, a lot longer than it should have if it oh, had a solid core. Um, and then, yeah, there's some other interesting factoids about our local solar system that uh, are kind of in the conspiracy theory end of things that I, that like for, for the uninitiated, I think would probably get really like, oh, you're one of those flat earthers, aren't you? It's like, no, not necessarily. You got to pick your conspiracy as well. For sure. Absolutely. Since we're on the topic, I think I already know the answer, but I'll ask it anyways. Uh, do you think we landed on the moon back in 1969? Uh, I do indeed think we've landed on the moon. So we've been there and done that, unfortunately. It's like okay. it, it would be a great story if we hadn't. But like, again, coming back to the evidence, like my, my understanding of a microgravity environment is just there, you couldn't have faked the kind of footage and evidence that they brought back with them, in my, in my opinion. But Here's the next question, though. Do you think that things were faked to make it more consumable? Um, for, for sure, NASA has used imagery from the ground as part of their like public um, imagery, imagery releases before. Um, there's people that will then be like, oh, well, that's right there is, is evidence. Evidence that, they, that, that everything they, every, is gone. Everything yeah. was done on a soundstage. It was like, no, I don't, that's not, that is not evidence. Um, that, that's evidence that, that some, like, some pictures are easier to take in, an, in a uh, gravity environment than, than they are in microgravity. And even like go, going to orbit. I mean, it, it took us going to the moon to get far enough from the planet for us to even get a picture of the planet. Low Earth orbit, you can't get a picture of the planet. That's another real common thing I hear. Like all of these pictures you see of, of the Earth, they're, they're actually stitched together. It's like, yeah, the planet's big and we usually don't go too far from it. Mm. It's like it takes something like the uh, Discover satellite. There's a, uh, NASA has a satellite, the Discover satellite. It has a camera called the EPIC camera. It's, it's an acronym for something. And it takes multiple pictures of the planet every day that, and that, that you can... It's available online, and so you, you can. If I mean, if you can, like, look and look at your local Doppler weather and see the cloud structure of your area, and then zoom out to, and then go like view like recent uh, epic camera photography, you can make correlations there. Like, oh yeah, this is that cloud for me. I mean, so it's it's on, but it's like what, that that won't convince some people. That's like, so that, interesting. That could, be, that could be fake imagery that they're creating. It's like, okay, well, they're creating fake imagery at, like multiple times a day, and they have been for the past like seven years since this satellite's been up there. It's, I don't, it basically comes down to, like, I was in the government. I was in the intelligence service, and I don't have any faith that they could cover up something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have strong opinions about space, but it is one that's so fascinating because the, the degree of technical knowledge you have to have to solve the problems. It's similar to Bitcoin. Is so high that a lot of the stuff looks like science fiction to people. But then on the other hand, when you do things out of convenience, that makes people write the entire thing off and go, ha, there it was, everything is a lie. You guys don't have any of that. <laughs> if your son's into like model rocketry, I would recommend, like if you like video games, Kerbal Space Program is an, an amazing tool for teaching rocket science. And oh, it, like, it's like Bitcoin, like it doesn't hold your hand. To like, to grok Bitcoin, you have to do the work to understand Bitcoin. Nobody else can hand it to you and just you understand it. Same thing with rocket science. I mean, to understand rocket physics and what it takes to get to orbit or to another 
another uh, body in our solar system. Like you've got to do the work to understand uh, thrust, the, the effect of thrust. And Kerbal Space Program, the video game, makes it the easiest that I've I have encountered. My understanding of orbital mechanics went up like an exponential level when I started playing Kerbal Space Program. Awesome. I'll check it out. I think the only like convincing argument that I was able to make that kind of had both my wife and my son back on their heels was like, um, I've got this friend who lives on the other side of the planet and we'll video chat sometimes and it'll be nighttime where I'm at and it'll be like broad daylight. You can see the, the sun shining in my friend's background. And so I asked my son, I'm like, look, if the, if the earth was flat, then how is it that it's nighttime when I'm talking to my buddy where we're at, but it's daytime where my buddy is at. And that had him stumped. And so I feel like I like, that's like the one argument I was able to make that um, put a, a shadow of a doubt in my son's head about the earth being flat. You could go back to the 1800s and like talk about the like the geocentric view versus the heliocentric view. It's like yeah. at, at one point everybody thought everything revolves around the Earth, right? And it's just it it simplifies the model dramatically to make the sun the center and not the Earth. Every it's much more complicated to make the the Earth the center of things and like what, what all these retrograde motions. It just it doesn't make sense. It's the Occam's razor. Like the sim, the simplest answer tends to be the correct answer. It's like. The simplest answer for why the solar system operates the way it does is because the Earth is round, not because it's flat and accelerating upward at a constant rate. Like that's <laughs> yep. that, that's like <laughs> if it's flat, the gravity comes from a uh, constant acceleration, and then then you're getting into the conversation of okay, where's this energy coming for a constant acceleration? And like, and as Bitcoiners, how can I harness this energy to mine Bitcoin? It's like <laughs> you're opening all of these doors to like yeah, that's it's not just as easy as like. Oh, it's flat, and it's always been flat, and it's a conspiracy. Like there's there's yeah. requirements to back up that claim. And as a Bitcoiner, it's like, man, if you can prove it, let's make some money. Yeah, you've got to get them get them to watch a sniper movie, and then explain the Coriolis effect. You got to keep planting seeds. The Coriolis, the Coriolis effect, effect is another growing, yeah. Which is that it's why snipers have to take into account the rotation of the Earth when they make extremely long shots. So you have to know where you are relative on the plane to account for that shift, it's essentially. A, yeah, the Coriolis effect is kind of, it talks about kind of like the airflow around around a globe that's in motion. So the, the Earth is spinning and the atmosphere is spinning at a similar rate, but it's not the exact same rate. So the Coriolis effect is the interaction between the spinning planet and the slightly less spinning atmosphere. It's almost like in a river, how the flow of a river changes depending on how deep you are because of the friction that's occurring within that water column. Okay, now we're so far off the tangent. Let's try to bring it back cuz right. we got the Tom note that we're rolling uh, we're rolling on time. So, uh, in order for Matt Odell and Craig Raw to knock out a great rabbit hole recap, uh, let's tie things up here until next week. So, any closing thoughts from you business cat? I appreciate you having me on. Uh, folks, if you want to uh, look me up, I'm on Twitter, underscore business, underscore cat. And uh, yeah, like I said at the top, uh, we d I just started my own podcast, and you all are welcome to listen to it, Rock, Paper, Bitcoin. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes. And Rob, any closing thoughts from you? Just that it's a huge pleasure as always, and thank you to the Pod 256 crew. Thank you to Rod. We're sorry he's 
He's doing single dad life right now. He's taking care of some family, and we missed him on his way back. Thank you to Econo Alchemist, who I still think is Econo Alchemist. I think calling you Eco is is <laughs> wrong. Um, I, I will die on that hill. And yeah, it's it's going to be an exciting next couple of months. I'm excited for all you builders, and please keep participating and sending hash to the inevitable one exahash. We are slowly getting there with the current S9 of hash rate, but you know more is coming every single day. Mm-hmm. So make sure you get on that train early, and you can be participating in the greatness that is Pod Two Five Six right now. Yep. Go and of from- course, thank you to producer Tom for killing it as usual. Well said. Going from zero to one was the biggest obstacle with our uh, mining pool account. And, you know, we did that. So tackling one exahash will be no problem. I don't know how to end it. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next week.